The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is my home base. It is a beautiful sunny day here in Dallas, though it's just a bit chilly at about 36 degrees. It's winter, what can we say? Before we get into today's program, I'd like to thank my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. If you're not familiar with them, Jobbing.com is the leading locally focused job board in the nation. They are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard and giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. I appreciate their partnership. We're both trying to get people to connect the work they want. For this week's conversation, I'm excited to bring you Christopher Scott. I happened to read about this remarkable man in the Dallas Morning News just recently and immediately reached out to invite him on the show. Christopher has the dubious distinction of having spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as a result of faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009 based on another man's detailed confession, the first non-DNA case. After his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, which is a non-profit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. In addition to owning and running a men's clothing store, Christopher continues to advocate for reform of the Texas criminal justice system. He is also involved in two movie projects, True Conviction Documentary and a narrative movie based on his life story and the story of House of Renewed Hope. Christopher joins us today from Dallas, Texas. Mr. Christopher Scott, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing about your story. But before we get into probably what a lot of people want to hear about, which is what that experience was like and how it came to be of being in prison, let's talk current day, if we can. I know you run a clothing store here in the Dallas area. You have, of course, reunited with your own two children and even enjoy a couple of grandchildren of your own. So how's life for you today? Uh, you know, life couldn't couldn't be any better. It's great to uh, be back in society again. It's great to reunite with my kids, and in the process, having two wonderful, wonderful, you know, grandkids. You know, it's kind of like um, the apple of my eyes right now are my grandkids. They're what I live for now because we know the children are our future. And me doing what I'm doing now, it'll help them in the long run to see how justice prevailed with their grandfather, and just for them to learn about more about what I've been through, my past, and the things that it took me to get out of prison. Mm. 
Well, let's hear about that story. I, I know our listeners are probably leaning in anxiously wanting to hear about this. So you went to prison and spent 13 years for this murder that you didn't commit. It all started back in 1997. And back then you had your two small children. I think you said they were five and six, five and seven, something like that? Yes, they were five and six, yes. Five and six. Okay, and you were trying to help a friend. So what happened? Tell us the story. What happened that got you into prison? Well, basically that day um, I was at home with my girlfriend and my two kids. We just fed them, and we was playing a video game before they go to bed because I put them to bed every night before I have to get them up for school the next morning. And my friend, he called me a few times, and each time I turned him down because I never leave the house that time of night anyway. And so, like, the last time he called me, I was like, okay, guy, you know, I'm going to come and talk to you because he was having a drug problem. And he wanted just to talk to somebody just to, you know, help him see, you know, where his life was going wrong at or whatever the case may be. So before I got to, the, got to his house, um, a murder had occurred probably maybe three, four hours prior to me arriving at his home. So as I'm turning on his street, which is... Kenwell. I, I've noticed a lot of cops in his neighborhood, which it was kind of strange because I've never seen these many cops in the neighborhood before. So I didn't even get out. I blew my horn and he came out, to, came out of his house and we rode around the block maybe a couple of times. And um, I, I, you know, talked to him about the drug problem, about, you know, what you need to do with your life. I'm like, dude, you're older than me, but I'm glad you came to me because I've never experienced drugs before. But I can only tell you my advice that I would give somebody that, you know, I'm okay with. And as I talked to him, we stopped at 7-Eleven and got a Dr. Pepper. And on the way back, I told him, and I noticed again, I said, there's a lot of cops at the night, I wonder what's wrong or whatever. So I said, I'm going to go on and take you home, and then I'm going to leave because it's just too many cops out here tonight. So as I'm turning the corner, so, so many cop cars passes by, but one particular cop shined her light on me. I'll never forget her name. Her name is Natasha Hunt. And as I'm driving down Claude Street, she gets behind us, but she never put the lights on us. So... I say, well, you know, uh, what, what I do is I drive up in your yard, we'll go sit in the house until she leaves because it looks like she has something on her mind. And I say, once she leaves, I get in my car and go because I just don't feel like being harassed at this time of the night, you know, dealing with cops. So next thing you know, uh, a cop called the house and told us that, you know, we all need to come out to ask some questions. And I told him, I'm like, look, it's cops on the phone saying people need to come out and ask questions. And he was like, having nobody in here did nothing, well, we're going to come out and ask questions for you. He said, hang the phone up. So I hung it up again. And like another minute or so later, they called back. And I said to cops again, you know what you want to do. Are y'all going to come out? Let them come in. What you going to do? He said, just hang it up. Tell them we'll be out in a few minutes. And once we agreed to come out, it's like time we open up the door, they bum-rushed the house, about nine or ten officers, and I'm sitting on the couch watching TV, and next thing you know, when I look up, I have at least seven to eight, nine-millimeter pistols pointed at me. And my whole thing was like, why are y'all coming in with guns drawn? You have kids here, you know, and you point the gun at a, you point the guns at a guy that haven't did anything, and I'm wondering why y'all pointing these guns at me. It was like, well, you need to step up, stand up, and come outside. So I said, okay, cool, no problem. So when uh, they 
emptied the whole house out, got everybody out, and all the men that was there, they laid us on the ground in front of the house. And a couple of few random guys was walking down the street. They called them over and laid them next to us also. But the crazy part is about it, it was about 10 of us laid on the ground, and I was in the middle. But everybody from the right-hand side was the actual perpetrators that committed this crime. So they, what they did was they told me to stand up. So I stood up. They walked me to a forensics truck, and they uh, put some liquid, you know, formula on my hand to see if I had fired a gun. And then, you know, it was the crazy part about it when they introduced me to the detective. They introduced him as being Columbo, and they were like, <laughs> I, "Have you, you know, this guy's Columbo?" I'm like, "What you mean, Columbo?" He said, "Have you ever seen the Columbo TV show?" I say, yeah, I grew up in that era, so I watched Columbo a few times. So they say, you know, he always gets his man. And I'm like, what does that mean? They was like, you will get found guilty for this crime. I'm like, what crime are you talking about? They say, well, you a thief. So they put me in a police car, and they told me, they said, well, it's going to be a lady to come here and identify you. And if she can't identify you, we have to let you go. So I was like, okay, I have no problem with it, you know. Uh, I, I know she don't know who I am. I don't know who she is, so this would be over pretty quickly. By that time, my girlfriend drives up, and they was like, grab her right there because in, in this murder that was a robbery that turned into a murder, a lady was supposed to have set the crime up. So they was looking at my girlfriend was the lady to actually set this crime up. And, you know, they handcuffed my girlfriend. I'm like, what's going on? Why y'all handcuffing my girlfriend? You'll know more about it once the lady show up. But the lady never showed up. And they say, well, she's not going to show up. What we're going to do is take you to Capers Building, Crimes Against Persons, and she will identify you there. And that's when I really seen, like, this don't look good. This look like the setup or something. It was already playing in my mind. So what they did, they took me to the Capers Building along with everybody else that actually committed the crime. But what they did was they put everybody else on one side of the room, and they sit me in front of a big glass door. And my hair was down because it's so early in the morning, I'm pretty tired, and now I'm pretty nervous and tired. So what they did was the officer that put the, the lights on us walked a lady up to me behind the glass door and said, this is the man that killed your husband. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. Like, this is the man that killed your husband. And she said, yes. So I couldn't hear her, but I, I read her lips. And I'm like, now, I know she didn't just say what I thought she said. And they say, well, um, when, when, when I recognized what she had said, she was crying and she was all hysterical. So the cops came and got me like, well, we're going to take you to the interrogation room. And I'm like, what am I being interrogated for? Because you never told me what I was being you know, questioned about. They say, well, you'll know when the time comes. I said, okay, fine. So they put me in the interrogation room, and the first thing they asked about was some drugs. I'm like, sir, I don't sell drugs. I don't use drugs. I don't know what you're talking about. So he was like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Tell me about the crime that happened. And I'm like, what crime are you talking about? And they would never tell me what I was being, you know, questioned about. So my first instinct was, let me use the restroom. Because I know whatever door, whatever room I'm in, if you look up outside the door at the top, it'll tell you what you're being questioned for. So when I went to use the restroom and I looked up, 
it was like, you know, homicide. So I'm like, they thinking I didn't either kill somebody or had something to do with somebody being killed because now I'm putting two and two together. That's why they put the liquid formula on my hand to see if I fired a gun or not. So as I come back and I'm like, man, you know, I'm almost in tears at that time because I'm like, now they question me for something I know I didn't do because I don't have that type of thing in my body to even harm somebody less than I don't kill somebody. And they sit me down for another two and a half, maybe three hours without a restroom break or whatever, and they're like, you need to tell me the truth about this crime. And they looking at me like I'm so stupid or whatever because I had this look on my face like, I can't tell you nothing that I know nothing about. And they like, yeah, keep playing stupid all you want to, but we finna book you on capital murder. Now, at the time, I don't even know what capital murder meant at that particular time because I'd never been in this kind of trouble before. A ticket, yes, but not like this. So as I'm walking out, they handcuff him. They say, well, you're going to be booked for capital murder. I'm like, God, I mean, why me? Why is this happening to me? And then as I'm walking, a cop that escorts me, that drove me to the capability, he pulled me to the side. He said, I need to talk to this young man for a second. I said, okay, what do you need, sir? He looked right at me and said, Mr. Scott, I do not believe you committed this crime. And I looked at him pretty strange. I'm like, I know I didn't commit this crime. I'm, you know, I'm being accused of something I didn't do. He said, this is why I know you didn't commit this crime. Prior to this lady seeing you maybe four or five feet away, she couldn't pick you out of a lineup or a picture lineup. And she said why she couldn't pick you out of the lineup, she was scared of you. And he was like, how can a woman be scared of somebody that can't harm her, that's in handcuffs, and she have about 13 or 14 officers standing around her? And he said, I'm going to tell you another thing why I don't think you committed this crime. He said, you wear groomed, you dress nice, you drive a nice car, you have a paycheck stub, where you have a paycheck in your pocket that haven't been cashed yet, and he like, you speak so well that it's nowhere in the world that I think you committed this crime. And at that point, I was like, sir, I didn't do this. I don't know nothing about it. They got the wrong person, but, hey, maybe in a day or two they'll correct this problem and I'll be back home again. He said, well, it may not be that simple for you, but what I want you to do, if it ever go to trial, I want you to subpoena me to court, and I would testify on your behalf that I don't think you committed this crime because we have no murder weapon, no fingerprints, no positive ID. We have nothing linking you to this crime but this latest word. And I looked at him kind of strange for a minute. I'm like, I don't know if I want you to come testify on my behalf because you already booking me for something I didn't do. How am I going to be able to trust you? He was like, I may be your only help to beat this case, to get your name cleared. I said, well, sir, you know, since you said it like that, I'm going to hold you to your word. And the whole ride to the jail with him and his partner, they were saying, like, Mr. Scott, it's not linking you to this crime. We have nothing but this latest word. And her word is not relevant to us right now because she couldn't even pick you out of a lineup. He was like, something is wrong with this case. And we don't think you did it. So they take me to the jail. They take all my clothes, and they get me arraigned, and I end up getting a million-dollar bond. And I'm like, I cannot afford no million-dollar bond. I'm like, I work at Tom Thumb. 
I'm a uh, uh, produce supervisor, so how would you think I'm going to be able to come up with a million-dollar bond or 10% of a million dollars? There's nowhere in the world I'm going to be able to come up with that money. So prior to that, they took my clothes, and they isolated me in a room. They said, well, your lawyer would be here, you know, in a matter of minutes. And I'm like, okay. They said, well, you know you're charged with capital murder. I'm like, yeah, what is capital murder? They saying, well, your lawyer would tell you what capital murder is. And then when my lawyer came, my lawyer was like, well, tell me what you did the entire day. And I explained to him, I said, well, I got up, I washed my girlfriend's car, I washed my car, we went to the laundromat, we t- went to a, uh, we was getting ready to go to a football game, and, and when we got back, you know, this when all of this stuff took place, when I went to see my friend Claude and talked to him, next thing you know, I drove into a crime scene where the murder happened at, you know, and that's, and that's exactly what happened. He said, well, you know, this is a serious case. This is a, either a life or death situation. I say life or death. He said, yes, that's exactly what capital murder is, is either you're going to get life in prison or you're going to get the death penalty. And at that particular time, now I'm shaking because I'm like, I didn't know what capital murder meant. I've never been in this type of trouble before. I've never been interrogated by no officers I've never been questioned by no officers of, of nothing of this nature. So I say, well, I calm down. I say, well, you know, first thing and foremost, I have to call my family and let them know I'm in jail for a capital murder or something that I didn't do. And I know once I told my family what was happening, they would believe that I'm, I'm not the type of person because I wasn't raised that way to take a life. So I go to jail, and I'm sitting in jail now for about a week or so, and then all of a sudden, they go pick up my co-defendant, Claude Simmons. And on that note, hey, Christopher, can I interrupt you? I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we do have to take a quick break, and I'm hanging on every word here, so hold those thoughts, if you would, for just a moment. We'll pick them up after the break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as a result of faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009 based on another man's detailed confession. After his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. We've been talking about how he landed in prison. After the break, we'll hear the rest of it and learn more about the organization he's running today to help others. Stay with us. the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. When you see someone, are you seeing the person or the perception? We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. 
On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He has since founded House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. In addition to owning and running a men's clothing store, Christopher continues to advocate for a reform of the Texas criminal justice system. He is also involved in two movie projects, True Conviction Documentary, and a narrative movie based on his life story and the story of House of Renewed Hope. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Let's pick where we left off. Christopher, you were just finishing telling us about what it was like through this harrowing journey of getting yourself, finding yourself actually on the other end of a prison cell here. So will you just finish that story for us? And then I'd love to hear a bit about what it was like to actually be in prison. Sure. So uh, they end up going to pick up the co- my co-defendant, Claude Simmons. And like I said, I was booked as the shooter. But um, once they seen that the uh, ballistic report came back negative, they automatically went and picked Claude Simmons up and just said, Okay, since you was with him that night, you're the killer, and he was just, you know, guilty by association because he was with you. So after that, we both go to trial, and it was crazy because we picked, and in, 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 when I was going to court, we um, actually had to pick maybe three different jury panels because could nobody find me guilty of this crime because they had no physical evidence. And a judge asked me why she shouldn't seek the death penalty. And the only thing I could ask her is, how could you kill an innocent man? And her statement was, you just saved your own life today because you answered that question right. And I was like, well, you know, maybe it was just that day she just didn't want to kill nobody. And I was so glad that she didn't want to, you know, go for the death penalty case. So my trial lasted maybe a day. Day and a half, not even a day and a half, maybe seven, eight hours, my trial was over. And when they came back with a guilty verdict, I couldn't believe it. Because when you're in a court building, they say that, you know, hearsay testimony is not, you know, is not credible in court. But this particular case, it was. Because they reset the trial four or five times because the lady was already on, like, a lot of medication psych meds, high blood pressure meds, or whatever the case may be. And you can tell through the course of the trial that this lady had been well coerced into saying what she's saying. And it took the jurors longer than I thought to deliberate because my trial lasted maybe six, seven hours, and they deliberated for like two and a half, close to three days. And the only thing I was hearing, like, hey, if they deliberate that long, 
it's something about this case that's just not adding up because in the capital murder case, it has to be a unanimous decision. And the unanimous decision came back as being guilty. And, you know, I really couldn't believe that I was found guilty, but the only thing that I liked about it was that they didn't seek the death penalty. They gave me a capital life sentence, which I would have had to do 40 years day per day before I was eligible for parole. And she asked me, did I have many last words? She said, I said, yes, first and foremost, could I hug my family? She said, yes. I hugged my mom, my sister, my brother, my girlfriend. And I told her, I said, you convicted the wrong man. But I guarantee and I promise you this, that I will come back and I will be exonerated in this same court building because you have just found an innocent man guilty. And I guarantee you I will be back before it's said and done and get my freedom back. And it took me 13 years to do it, but here I am today. And how it really got started, my brother was incarcerated with the guy that actually committed this crime. Wow. And my brother worked in a barber shop that he cuts her in prison, and the guy was in there getting his hair cut. Alonzo was in there getting his hair cut, and the way men and talk in a barbershop, he was like, yeah, I got away. Me and my friend got away with a murder. And they like, how you do that? He said, me and my friend went to rob a drug house. It went bad. My friend shot this guy. He ended up dying. And two men ended up going to prison for it. And my brother was like, what neighborhood did this happen in? Well, it happened in North Park. Uh, the guy's name is Claude Simmons and Christopher Scott. They've been in prison for almost 13 years for this crime, and we got away with it. And, you know, having nobody ever came about to ask us about these, about this crime. But while I was going to court, their name came up. They had pictures of Claude and his assailant, which is Derek Anderson. The cops had a picture that said, these are the guys that we heard that committed this crime. They background and M.O.s are robbing drug houses and, you know, getting away with the drugs because this particular drug house that they robbed, the other guy, Derek Anderson, had already robbed this place before, and the guy recognized him, and that's when the guy came up with the gun and was going to shoot him, but Derek Anderson ended up shooting the guy first. And then maybe in 2006 when Craig Watkins got elected, my co-defendant, was writing to him all the time, so was I. But eventually, my co-defendant letter got heard, and they started investigating, I, you know, investigating our case. So um, we end up um, going, you know, a, a, a law student from the University of Texas in Arlington came to see me, and when she came to see me, she wanted me to confess to the crime to let my co-defendant go. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, she wanted me to confess to the crime to let my co-defendant go, and I was like, I can't confess to a crime that I did not commit. And uh, she was like, well, tell me what you did that day, and I'll see what I can do for you. And I explained to her, when I got up that morning, from the time I got up and brushed my teeth and from the time I was getting my kids ready for bed, 
And I went and picked up Cloud, and we made a run a couple of times around the block in the 7-Eleven, and we came back home. And she was like, well, that's the same story Claude Simmons is telling me. I'm like, look, lady, if you're trying to be an attorney, you might as well need to get your facts together a little more better because we was together at that particular time, so there's no way in the world that we could have committed this crime because this crime was committed three, maybe four hours prior to I even went and picked Claude up. She says, so this is what I'm going to do for you because I was like a throw-in. She was coming for me to get a confession out of me. It wasn't for me to say, tell her my story. She just wanted me to sign on the dotted line to let Claude Simmons go. And when I told her that, she was like, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put your case with Claude Simmons' case, and I'm going to see what the district attorney is going to say about it. She said, but you got to understand, this is a non-DNA case, and this has never been done in the state of Texas or in Dallas County history, period. And she said, Craig Watkins is willing to listen. But at that particular time, I didn't know that Lonzo had already confessed. Lonzo had came down there and took a polygraph test and passed it. So when he did that, they were like, well, if these two guys come back and do the same thing, which is pass the polygraph test, then it's marriage to the story that these guys didn't commit this crime. But it was so good that Lonzo had a lot of detail about this case because non-DNA cases, if you don't have a lot of detail about the case, and then the case is not, is not going to be heard. But since he had a lot of detail about it, the DA took it in consideration. And when I got to jail, it was so crazy because once I got there, the DA came and saw me. Mr. Watkins came and saw me. He said, Christopher, I've never done this since I've been DA, and this probably be the first and last time I ever do this. Me and Craig Watkins went to the same high school. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I want you to be honest with me. Because he said, my integrity unit is on the line, my job is on the line, and my reputation is on the line behind this case. He said, did you commit this crime? I said, no, sir, I did not commit this crime. I didn't know nothing about this crime. I wasn't even in the neighborhood at the time that this crime had com- was committed. He said, well, do you know the individuals that committed this crime? I say, from what I heard, I heard Alonzo Hardy and D-Mite, which is Derek Anderson, is the one that committed this crime. And he was like, okay, you know, that's what I needed to hear. He said, now, are you willing to take a polygraph test? I say, sir, if I take a polygraph today, test today, you will let me go tomorrow because I'm guaranteed that I would pass this test. And he was like, it don't work that way, and it's not that simple. But if you pass the polygraph test, you will be just that closer of going home. And he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to set it up for you to take the polygraph test. And if you pass it, just thank me that I'm allowing this to happen, that you may be just that closer to going home. At that time, I was ready to do it then, but it didn't happen that day. It happened maybe a week later. And the crazy part about it, my co-defendant, Claude Simmons, ended up having high blood pressure. And he took his blood pressure medicine before he went to his polygraph test, and he fell asleep. He fell asleep doing a polygraph test. Wow. I was like, how can you do that? 
and our life is on the line, dude. You got to do better than what you're doing or don't take the medication. But the next time I say, well, let me go first because I'm not on no medication. Let me go first, and I'm guaranteed I'm going to stay woke all through whatever, whatever transition it is to take a polygraph test. And it was so scary when I took the test because it was like an old, like, electric chair back in the day where you get electrocuted in. And mm. they strapped me up to this chair, and I was sweating so profoundly. And I asked the guy, like, look, this thing is not going to short circuit on me because I'm sweating hard, and I don't want to pass this test. And as soon as I pass, I get electrocuted because I'm sweating so hard. He said, no, it's not going to do anything like that. Just calm down, take your time, and answer the question. And they was really basic questions. It was like four questions. Did you do it? Did you have anything to do with it? Do you know the individuals that did it? Do you own a handgun? And when I was like, no, I don't, hand, I don't own a handgun. I did, don't really know the guy. I know of them, but I don't know them personally. I've never been on that street a day in my life. And... I, I didn't have anything to do with this case. And those are just basic questions that he asked me. And when it was all over with, he said, well, the test is over with. And I come back and let you know if you pass. But what infuriated me the most, that every cop that was involved in that case was there that day looking for me to fail that test. Mm -hmm. yeah. All of them was there looking for me to fill that test. And when he came back and said, I concur, the police chief concur, the chief of polygraph concur, and the district attorney concur, that you were telling the truth the whole time. I said, sir, I told them the same thing I'm telling you 13 years prior to me having to take this test today. If they would have listened to me, 13 years ago, I would never be in this position that I'm in right now trying to prove my innocence. So you made an innocent man go to prison for 13 long years. And the head detective they called Colombo walked in the room and wanted to shake my hand. And I wow. told him, I do not want to shake your hand because if you would have did your job thoroughly, if you would have followed proper procedure and proper protocol, this type of thing wouldn't have never had happened. I don't fault Alonzo. I don't fault D-Mike. I fault people in much higher positions than them at that particular time, from the cops to the prosecutors to the judges. Those are the people that wronged me. It wasn't Lonzo or Derek Anderson because you don't know too many people that's going to come back and say, I actually committed this crime when there's no statute of limitations law on murder. I don't hold those guys accountable. I hold the judges, the district attorneys, the prosecutors that fabricate stories to the fact just to get a conviction. That's who I hold accountable for my wrongful conviction. And I'm just glad that I, I was able to keep focused. I was able to stay positive. I was able to stay motivated. 
to where when I did go to prison, I had a system set up so when I go to prison, this is what I'm going to have to do to stay out of trouble because there's no way in the world I want to go to prison and hinder myself being locked up forever and not ever being able to come out and hug and kiss my family and my kids again. I say I'm going to be the upstanding citizen and inmate while I'm in prison. And Christopher, I want to absolutely hear about that, and I think my listeners will too, and we're already at our second break, so hold your breath for just a second. Uh, We'll finish that break here. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit, having landed there as a result of faulty eyewitness identification. He was exonerated in 2009 based on another man's detailed confession. After his release, Christopher founded the House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. After the break, we'll hear a bit more about what it was actually like to be in prison and what his organization actually does to serve those in need. Stay with us. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Want more positivity in your life? Are you ready to get healthy, happy, and energized? Join the Stella Donna Goddess Gals, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany for a power hour of stimulating, supportive conversation on Star Style. Be the star you are. A lineup of best-selling authors, celebrities, and experts. Join the effervescent mother-daughter dynamic duo in this upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio playground. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Lend us your ears. It's power time. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. If you're just joining us, my guest is Christopher Scott, who spent 13 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He has since founded the House of Renewed Hope, a nonprofit organization, the goal of which is to investigate other wrongful conviction cases. In addition to owning and running a men's clothing store, Christopher continues to advocate for reform of the Texas criminal justice system. He is also involved in two movie projects, True Conviction, Documentary, and a narrative movie based on his life story and the story of House of Renewed Hope. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. We've been talking a bit about how what his experience was like getting into prison and all of the all the things that he encountered along the way. 
today. For this final segment, I'd like us to focus on a little bit about what it was like to actually be in prison, be away from your kids, and what it is that you're doing in the work you're doing today. So, Christopher, uh, what was it like? Um, For those of us that thankfully have not spent time behind bars, what was your experience of prison like, and how did you spend your time? It was the worst feeling I could ever, or anybody could ever imagine. I wouldn't wish prison. I wouldn't wish prison on my worst enemy. And being away from my kids is like my whole life was destroyed. It's like I was buried in a tunnel, trying to dig my way out to see some light, and it just wasn't no light at first. At the end of that tunnel, and leaving your kids at such an early age, knowing that somebody else else has to raise your kids. It's something that I never, ever thought that I would be put in that position. But in order for me to get out to them again, I had to stay strong. I had to just keep them mending in my heart like this is my whole sole purpose as getting out and fighting for my freedom to get out to be with my kids again. And my first day in prison, I saw men getting raped. I saw guys getting stabbed. So automatic when I went to prison, it's like a light switch. Automatically, I had to get in a survival mode. Like, I have to be able to survive in prison without even getting myself killed or having to kill somebody trying to protect myself. Because automatic, if I have to kill somebody in prison, I automatically go to death row because I have a capital murder case. If you kill somebody in prison with a capital murder case, you automatically go to death row. Row. No appealing it or nothing. It's just straight death row being executed. So this is basically how I spent my time getting myself together. When I went to prison, I was 135 pounds. And the first thing I said, I have to get stronger with body. So I'd start lifting weights every day. I got a job in the kitchen to where I could eat the way I wanted to eat to help feed the muscles that I was trying to get. And I read maybe three, four books per week. I'm a big book reader, love reading books. And I went to rec a lot. I lift a lot of weights. I played a lot of basketball. And to end the day, is like 6 in the morning, I'm getting off of work. 7 in the morning, I'm going to rec. About 10, I'm reading, you know, reading a book. And to top that day out, I love soap operas. And my favorite one was, his favorite one is General Hospital. So that little system right there, from going to the kitchen to work, lifting weights, reading my book, and at the end of the day, to top it out, I would watch General Hospital. And that right there was the system that got me through that whole 13 years that I was in prison. I never got in trouble in prison, never once caught a case in prison. I was an upstanding inmate in this prison, and it's hard to be in a prison like that because I was on a 5,000-man unit. When you have 5,000 different personalities in prison, you have to come up with a system that allows you not to get caught up within the system. My body was institutionalized, but I didn't want my brain being institutionalized to the prison life. I didn't want my brain being institutionalized. My body was in prison, but my brain wasn't in prison. And Christopher, we can learn so much from you in that. Oh, my gosh, the discipline, the rigor is, it's, is mind-boggling to me. It's amazing. I think our listeners will be able to take something from that right there alone as well. 
and being in prison, I formed, I thought about what I would do if I ever got exonerated. And I used to call meetings in prisons with guys because when you see other men in prison saying they was falsely in prison, it's like you was looking in a mirror. It's like all of us fit the same description, medium height, medium weight, African-American men with a low haircut. And I'm describing how many men are you describing when you describe that? You're describing half of the African-American men in the world when you get that type of description. So every day I was seeing the same guys come up to me saying the same thing. I was falsely in prison. I didn't commit this crime. So I started calling meetings with certain guys like, what could we do to help this runaway train, this disease that's destroying African-American men's families? What can we do? And I told him, I said, the first guy to get out must take a stand of going to Austin, trying to get laws and bills passed that we can stop this one runaway train. And lo and behold, I was the first guy to get out. So I had already had my plan together about what I wanted to do while I was in prison. And if I get out, I can execute it. And that's exactly what I did. I executed and I found it, the house of renewed hope. And what I did was I took a saying from a guy in prison. He said, you got a million and one chance to make it out of prison. Simple fact, you have no DNA in your case, and somebody has to come back and confess to that crime. Right then I told them, you know what? I'm going to be that one out of a million to get out with none DNA, and there I was. And once I got out, that following week I had 125 letters from different guys in different prisons saying how glad that I got that, how glad they were that I got out from none DNA. Then it gave them hope, and that's why I came up with the House Renewed Hope. Just that little bit of hope keeps those guys fighting for their lives while they're in prison for crime they didn't commit. So what, when I did that, I said, well, I'm going to start an investigation thing where what we're going to do, we got to give back to the people that we left behind in prison. And I started the House of Renewed Hope, and what we do is people write us from all over the world, and it goes to our P.O. box. And what we do, we get the cases, we look at them, we meet about them, and we decide which case do we feel have the most merits for us to take in front of the DA office and see if we can get that case reopened because every case hits us are cold cases, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years. And we actually working on two cases right now. We, we got, we're working on the case of the guy that's actually spent the longest time on death row, which is Max Sofar. He's been on death row. 38 years. Now, you tell me how many people be on death row for those many years without being executed. Somewhere in their mind, they don't think this guy committed this crime. And when we investigate these cases and we go talk to the people, we go talk to the family members, we go, invest, we go interview the prosecutors, the judges, the cops, friends and family members of the people that was wrongfully convicted, and you see where a lot of mistakes was made during the time where these people was being convicted of these crimes. Has to renew it hope is about giving back 
the people that can't help themselves because somebody had to help me get out of prison. So it wouldn't even been right for me to get out and not try to help people that were still left behind. And that's exactly what House of Renewed Hope is, is trying to help people that can't help themselves. Yeah, Christopher, it's so impressive. When I when I read your story in the Dallas Morning News, I thought to myself, if this guy isn't working on purpose, I don't know who is. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the name of my show. And I thought, I this is the perfect person for my for my radio show. And I've been so appreciative of listening to your story. I know my list my listeners will too. Uh, we have a bit more time left in the program. And one of the other things that you said that you were doing is that you were really trying uh, to focus your efforts on uh, on criminal reform. Can you oh, say a yeah. bit more about that? Yeah, what are you doing there? Well, basically what I do is I'm a big lobbyist in Austin. And any time the session comes, I'm there maybe seven or eight times traveling back and forth from Austin to Dallas because who better know how to get things done and have people to pay attention to what's going on than the guy that actually been wrongfully convicted, that got out that won Texan of the Year Award. 2012, I was awarded Texan of the Year from the Dallas Morning News to get handshook from every person from the House floor, from the Senate floor. And now people respect what I do. People respect who I am. People respect what I have to say. And when I can implement that into going down there and testifying for criminal reform, People now pay attention to to what can we do to help you out in this situation. What you need to do is start making prosecutors and judges be held accountable for what they allow to happen in their court buildings. If we can get more people to back us with our criminal reform system, it's even better because we already have a format of men that was wrongfully convicted going to Austin, lobbying, and getting respect from all the higher-uppers of these guys come down here every session to talk about wrongful conviction or no matter what we feel like the criminal justice system is slacking in. If that's for better prison systems or better food in a prison or prison is not there to rehabilitate you because if it was, a lot of guys that get out of prison wouldn't be repeated offenders. You know, prison is a way of, it's a slavery mentality of you going to work in the fields, getting talked to crazy by officers on horses with guns, with 10-gallon hats, telling you what to do. And if you're not doing it properly, talking about your mom, your kids, your girlfriend. So we must go to Austin, where the laws and bills are made, and talk to the people they can make changes in our criminal reform system. I testified for a bill that got passed of ag seg, where men was back there that 60 and 70 years old. That you know, when you, I was back there for a period of time also, where when I woke up in the morning, it's a rat in my cell eating out of the tray that I just ate out of that morning. So you tell me, how does that make me feel? So I had to go down there and testify to make them see what I went through and for them to understand and give them a picture about, hey, I was in ag I woke up with rats in my cell. 
I woke up, you know, with, with, with trying to fight off critters that shouldn't even be in my cell. And it's inhumane for a person to have to live in prison that type of way. We understand everybody in prison is not, is, isn't innocent, but we know it's geared to people in prison also. But just imagine now that it's a true fact. Everybody in prison don't belong in prison because if you look at it, Dallas is the second in the nation of wrongful convictions. So now you get to see everybody in prison don't belong in prison because I'm a witness of that today because if it wasn't, I wouldn't be here talking to you on your radio show as of today as I'm doing right now. You know, Christopher, I, I think if, if anything else, we're starting the new year with you, and if anything else, I hope that they walk away feeling grateful for their freedom, grateful for their life, grateful for the life that they have, and inspired by you and your life and your work uh, to pursue what they really want to do, to pursue something of meaning, of merit that's going to make a difference to somebody else. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking time out to come to the program. Um, in our last just moment together, is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with, just in, say, maybe 30 seconds or so? I think you just said it. You know, I'm going to piggyback off what you said. Just imagine when people complain about bills, relationships, money, uh, kid problems. Just think, if somebody in prison has it worse than you, and the people that has it worse than you are the people that was falsely in prison. Once you hear those stories, you should wake up every morning feeling blessed that you're not in that position that they're in while they're in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Be thankful for life. Be thankful for your relationships. And whatever struggles you have, just imagine if somebody with a bigger struggle than you. What a beautiful way to close, Mr. Christopher Scott. I can't tell you how much I've appreciated you coming onto the show and the work that you're doing. One of these days, I'm going to meet you in person. I'm going to come find you in your store and say thank you. Um, if you want to learn more about this amazing man, please do visit his website, houseofrenewedhope.org. I'll see you next week. And remember that work is one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.